John 17, 1 through 26. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it, and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united, just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost, except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world, so they would be filled with joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them, so they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one, I in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me, because you love me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to kids' church. Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Do not be afraid, daughters, I and see. Your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. It's a reading for Palm Sunday this morning from John's Gospel. Um, Palm Sunday is one of those um, texts that appears in all four Gospels. This, this reception of Jesus into Jerusalem um, that sort of comes in this way in the church has historically and always sort of honored Palm Sunday as the Sunday before Easter because that's where it fits in the timeline of the story. The challenge is is that in each of the Gospels, Palm Sunday comes um, at least eight chapters before the end of the Gospel. Um, There's teaching, there's an interacting, there's all this other stuff. And so we've been walking through the priestly prayers and the teaching that Jesus does after Palm Sunday— Now we go backwards to Palm Sunday, so we're not fully doing this chronologically, but we're trying to live into that. And what starts on Palm Sunday is Holy Week, this week set aside in which we sort of begin with the disciples and sort of this moment of here this king comes to Jerusalem. Here comes the one who comes from God. And then we watch as the disciples fall away, as his friends fall away, as he ends up in trial, as he goes to the cross, as he dies. And Holy Saturday represents that darkest day of all. So that Easter light may shine all the brighter. So Friday, we have our Good Friday service where we hear that story as well. How Christ is passed around from one person to another person to another person in the sense in which everybody wants to kill him, but nobody wants to do it sometimes. He's just sort of this one who, who becomes this one who's passed through this journey on this way. And so, too, we, we start that this week. Now, Chris, Chris had made this, this artwork to capture Lent, which has 40 days of light and dark, light and dark, light and dark, and then that half day at the bottom right, which is the Good Friday, and then that full day of darkness that captures Holy Saturday. Um, but this is where we find ourselves in John's Gospel this morning, trying to hold together both that this is Palm Sunday. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, here comes the king of Israel. And then also finishing that teaching. This is the Sunday in which Christ prays for his disciples. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And he prays for the church that comes after that. And so we're going to attempt to sort of walk through both of those scenes today. Um, Palm Sunday being the shortest aspect of it. The thing I want to note about Palm Sunday in John's Gospel is that he comes with Lazarus. In the previous scene right before this coming is that he has brought Lazarus back from the dead. He's brought Lazarus back to life. Now traditionally in the imagery that we see in Palm Sunday in some ways is the imagery of a king coming back from battle with his victors, with the spoils of his battle. What's odd about Palm Sunday, the phrase that Christians um, use for this often is this sort of upside-down kingdom, this way in which this king comes in a way that appears to be upside-down to the rest of the world, is that he comes not on a white horse, not on a stallion, not on a symbol of power, but he comes on a donkey. Martin Luther has a wonderful phrase where he says he comes on a donkey because he comes on an animal that is meant to aid men as he is meant to aid us. But he comes on an animal meant for work. 
And the spoils of his victory are these people who sort of proclaim him, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the one I want to focus on today is, is Lazarus being there, is that at the end of that scene, um, it says that the, uh, now the crowd he had called, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word that Lazarus has come with this crowd as well. Jesus, in a different way, the spoils of his victory are not material in the same sense in which we think. Normie would come back with, with people who you intended to, in some sense, make slaves captured from the other army um, and sort of transfer of wealth. But what Christ comes in, first in the donkey represents that upside-down kingdom, but in the second is Christ's battle was truly not with flesh and blood, but with the powers of death. And if that's true, then it's important that he comes back with one whom is, uh, he has rescued and captured in that battle preliminarily. We'll see the fullness of that victory in the cross and in the resurrection. What we see here is that Christ's victory parade, this parade that he marches through the straits of Jerusalem, is not like any other, the donkey, the, the, the less material that comes with him, but the one thing that he has, that he has captured back, is this one whom he has brought back from the dead. And so, too, we see in that that Christ is this one, and his victory is coming to conquer death and ways. Now, in this passage, we'll hear several times, um, what does it mean? And we've called it in the sermon series some, the with God life. Eternal life is this, um, these type of things. And so, the last prayer in John's Gospel, John 17, um, that we'll spend the bulk of time on today is a quick summary of all of the gospel. And since as much as, as I would like to go for an hour and a half going through all of that, trying to recapture all of what he said and done, um, it's beautiful out. Um, and so we will, we will not do that. But I wanted to go back as we were singing this song um, to this slide, just to, just to make a quick note. From the fear of serving others from the fear of death of trial, and from the fear of humility, deliver me, O God, deliver me. If we're watching how Jesus talks and speaks about this with God life in John's gospel, it comes with from the fear of serving others. One of the earlier scenes four or five weeks ago, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And first, what he says in that scene is that he makes them clean. Christ is the one in his, his um, coming to this life restores humanity to the image in which it was supposed to be. And that touch there, he is, he is bringing them into communion in some ways. Peter, the, the, the zealous one, which the Bible does not have that positive of a view towards zealotry because it becomes overly performative, as if we can trust in ourselves, says, wash all of me. But Christ says, if I have washed and touched you, you are clean. But the second thing that comes from that passage is that then he says you can serve one another in this way. And we talked about in that sermon how the ethical moral implications of that, just, just that often gets boiled in our culture down to just be nice, what he actually frees the disciples into is from the fear of serving others. Now, if your inner battle in relationship with people and love and having a family and having coworkers and having friends is anything like mine, 
There is deep fear in serving others. So I open myself to be taken advantage of. What if they're not thankful? What if um, I'm doing it wrong? Um, what if I've misjudged the situation? To be freed from the fear of serving others. From the fear of death or trial, he's going to talk about what does it mean to know God and be in God in this, in this prayer that he offers in John 17. And to be and to know in God, to have that eternal kind of life, is to be freed from the fear of death and trial. So much of that dying to self, which is sort of what he alludes to in that wash passing, is that we have this fear in which that what if we end up at the bottom? What if we go to the place of death? What if trial avails us as we speak, as we proclaim, as we live this God life? Christ in John 17 prays that we would be freed from those fears. And it's, it's, um, it's part of what he's been t- saying the whole time. If you go back to that famous Nicodemus scene for God so loved the world, is that new birth, that new life, that coming from a different place. But when he talks about that, that, that we abide in the vine, that we abide from a different place, a place of life. And so that summarying, uh, making sure all the books are equal in this life, is not what's there for us in this with God life. And from the fear of humility, um, the devotional, if you're doing the common rule devotional, this, this past week the trial was humility. And it contained a quote from C.S. Lewis that said, the humble person is weird because they're not thinking less of themselves. They're thinking of themselves less. Um, they're not thinking less of themselves. They're thinking of themselves less. And so I just gave up. I was like, well, if that's the challenge for this week, no thanks. Um, uh, Because so much of how we structure our days, our lives, um, contains a lot of thinking of ourselves. Joke about this, but I think this is a real challenge in the world, is I fall for the cult of productivity, of individual optimization of your life so that it will be free through apps, through um, bullet journaling, through productivity resources, through to-do lists. Um, One of the best books that came out this past year, oh man, if somebody knows the name of it, it's 4,000 Weeks, I think is the name, or it's 8,000 Weeks, but essentially it's an anti-productivity book on that, like, this is the time you have left if you live to 80 years old. Um, And so it helps name that, like, limits are part of this. The fear of humility If I think of myself less, won't everything just fall apart? To be freed from that fear. And what Jonathan read in Psalm 118, um, Hosanna, uh, it has this way of save us now. Now the reason why it's not often translated that in our modern Bibles is because it's more of a... uh, a saying. It's, it's, it would be something you say without um, meaning the full alliteration of it. Does that make sense? I mean, the only thing coming to my mind right now is YOLO, which is like the worst example because you actually mean, um, I think you mean it. I don't know. I haven't heard it for a long time. It shows my age. Young people, you can look it up on Urban Dictionary when you get home. Um, uh, but like they're saying, the reason why it's not always transliterated in our Bibles or, or spelled out is because it's, it's a saying that sort of is like, you're here, we praise you, we lift up, but it literally means save us now. So in this passage, deliver us, O God. Deliver us from that time in trial. 
But this is the Sunday that Christ prays for us. The words of absolution we use after confession later in the service, it always, the one that strikes me as one of the most powerful is that Christ prays for us. So much of my Christian life has been performative in the way that I need to be holy. I need to be doing these things. I, I mean, the, the way in which we think of our modern lives and self-optimization is the way the church is like, yes, let's just line up with that and say we can optimize you, but in a Christian way. That is not a good thing. I try to stay away from that. Um, my joke is I rarely have application in my sermons, um, largely because the theologian Philip Carey said, Application is beautiful because the gospel is beautiful. Or application is use, uh, uh, useless because the gospel is beautiful. And essentially, we see an image of beauty, and that's which we live our lives out of. But to just always give you application just becomes hard. Because essentially, if you're here 50 Sundays a year, I've given you a checklist of 50 things to do. Um, and I'm happy when I can get two done. Um, and, and uh, just by chance, if I were to say, you know, forgive the person who did great harm to you this week, you've got a week to do it. Like, that's, that doesn't seem fair. Um, so I try to stay away from application because I think the gospel is beautiful, but there's this reverse application within it, which is that Christ makes a home for us. We don't make that home. That Christ prays for us even before we pray in Christ. That we are receivers of this message before we are doers. Rowan Williams says that the gospel comes first as news to us before it becomes application. It's the news of what God has done. Christ, in John 17, prays for us. Prays for himself, which is... um, the rabbinic prayer from Leviticus, if you're familiar with the scapegoating scene, one of the things the rabbi would do is first pray for himself that he would be holy as he goes and offers the sacrifice. Then he would pray for the community of priests, the community of those who also do that, that they would be clean as well. And then finally he would pray for the community of Israel, that they would receive this gift in cleanliness as well. He brings the goat and the goat dies. Um, spoiler. The um, application that we have here is that Christ first prays for himself as he becomes that rabbinic rabbi, that one who goes into the temple. He prays for his closest disciples, those nearest him, this community, in that way. And then he prays for the community that outstretches into the world from that moment, too, for all those who believe in him. And the final part of that prayer is that they, that they might be the type of community that causes others in the world to believe in him stretching this out into the fullness of the world. What's interesting about Christ is then Christ becomes the sacrificed as well. He, he becomes the Passover that takes away the sins of the world as he goes through that movement. Um, but Christ prays for us. There's much gospel in that saying right there. Then the next thing... Um, is that he looks up to heaven and he prays to his father, the hour has come. One of the shortest sayings of the Desert Fathers is look up, not down. Um, And I find this is applicable to my life in all sorts of ways. One, in which I can think less of myself more freely if I look up, not down. 
One of the things we try to, to model in our church service is that this is a community that we look up to whom God is for us. And then we go out into the world to sort of ascent ones for that horizontal relationship of things. But so much of our lives we spend looking down, looking down on others, looking down on community. Um, and it's, if you look up, it's harder, I think, in some ways, to notice the ways in which your spouse, coworker, friend, neighbor is disrupting that perfect life in which you think you should be living. I don't know why. We had to, I joked with Kelly about this. We had neighbors um, who would just endlessly practice. Um, dun, 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 dun. That's a song from, they do it at football games. I'm thinking the Black Keys, but it's not the Black Keys. It's White Stripes. For two hours on Saturday, they would just play the bass line with the drums from the White Stripes. Um, and it was terrible. Um, uh, I like the bass line from the, so at first, you know, it was like, hey, I feel like everything I'm doing is epic now. Um, and then it became very tiring. The point being is um, you look up, not down. That doesn't seem like the end of the world the way it was. I can find better ordering for my life if I don't just look at, if I don't just listen to the baseline of, is that Seven Nation Army or Icky Thump? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, it's this line of the audience that knows the, the, the White Stripes well enough. So anyways, connecting that to the Desert Fathers was a win. Um, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that you may, uh, that your son may glorify you. you. Um, What's happening in this first part of the passage, and it's going to come up throughout the rest of this prayer, and it's been alluded to in the rest of the gospel, is the hour is coming. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner translates this, the, the weekend is here, because it's the, um, this is the moment in which Christ has been walking towards, this Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Crucifixion and resurrection is the moment at which he's, he's not talking about a literal hour in that sense, but he's talking about this time of which he will be received into glory, that this will be the time in which he becomes uh, lifted up in the way. And because John's gospel, different than the other three, is written from the back to the front. It's written in the idea that, the, that Christ has already been raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father, is then John, in telling the, the, the gospel, is able to make the crucifixion the moment of sort of the glory. Whereas if you're telling it from the front to the back, the crucifixion looks like the end of the story. Um, it looks like that all has been lost. So the resurrection becomes the seal on that he has been vindicated. But because John so often already has the end in sight, he wrote this gospel so that you may know that he is the Christ, the risen one. That he's able to say that perhaps the time at which Christ is most received is that time in which he is crucified. Which puts whole new meaning on the fear of serving others and all that. But one of the questions here is, is we, we look at this first part being laden in that glory thing. In here is sort of a mini creed. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That sounds um, 
short, um, that this is eternal life, you know, where's heaven in this picture, where's all the things in which we sort of promise as Christians. But in this knowing contains all that. But I think it's important to hear this, that eternal life is in knowing the one whom God has sent, knowing that Jesus has come amongst us. And that is the way in which we know the one true God as well. Speaking of the glory, Hillary in 400 AD, this quote I just love, what was this hour, what was this weekend? Answer, he was now to be spit on, scourged, crucified, but the Father glorifies the Son. The Son, instead of setting, fled, and all the other elements felt the same, shook of the death of Christ. The stars in their course to avoid complicity in the crime escaped by self-extinction from beholding the scene. The earth trembled under the weight of our Lord hanging on the cross and testified that it has have the power to, that it doesn't have the power to hold him in whom was dying. The centurion proclaimed truly this was the one uh, within it him who was dying the son of God. Creation is set free by the meditation of the sin offering. The very rocks lose their solidity and strength in the 400s, that all this stuff is encapsulated into this hour, this moment, this glorifying that happens here. Jesus next moves the prayer for praying for the disciples, um, prayers for those nearest to him. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. Gave is a huge word in John's gospel, which we didn't get much into this time. For God gave his only son, for God gave. Um, now God has given the Son those whom he has taken out of the world. And what's lined up here is these passages that have to do around world. Um, Jesus is leaving the world. He's going to go sit at the right hand of the Father. The advocate, the counselor, the comforter, the spiriter is coming alongside the disciples as they remain in the world. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, um, which is one of the only instances where Christ sort of uses this phrase, holy and father coming together, has this way of saying that there's this distinction. There is this uh, line between that which is holy and that which is unholy. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. And what happens here is the disciples, as you read through this, are ones grafted into the name, which is a big deal in the Old Testament, the name of God, and many of us are familiar with this, they wouldn't pronounce um, in those times. They would say Adonai um, or something else, but they're being grafted into the name. And this name makes distinction in them. In the previous passage, Jesus alluded how the, the disciples don't have their same origin in the world that the world has. And for this, the world dislikes them, hates them, will persecute them, will push them out. They are still in the world. And Christ has this very clear sense of which this body of believers is going to be outsiders in the world. We were capable, and we are capable through Christ, of living what that line we saw from the, what he's saying from the song, would be outsiders in the world. It's not just outsiders in the sense of um, piety that sort of lifts us up. It's outsiders in the sense and we are freed to live differently because of what Christ has done, because we are ones bearing the name. So too, that, that what I want to say is one a thought that we circle around often here, 
Um, and this is the quote on the back of the bulletin for today. But therefore, the first social task of the church, the people capable of remembering and telling the story of God we find in Jesus, is to be the church and thus, to, thus help the world understand itself as the world. It's a thick sentence. Um, for the church to be the church, therefore, is not to, to be anti-world, but rather an attempt to show what the world is meant to be as God's good creation. He says in other places that the first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world more aware that it's the world. This is a great challenge for us, because what's proclaimed in John's gospel is this difference between the believers and the world. And because most of us still have teenage angst, we just want to fit in. We just want to go along with the flow. The deep challenge, I think, for the church today, and we've lived in a world that I think has received many gifts from the church. But as that time seems to be shifting, what does it mean to regain in ourselves that the first task again for the church is to be the church, to be those called out, to be those prayed for, to be those who worship, I mean, one of the things we can do that the Lions Club or the ACLU or um, uh, Greenpeace or any of those other things can't and don't do is worship. We can pray as those whom Christ prayed for us. So the church to regain itself in the world, to be guarded in this name, to be protected for the evil one, it might be time to become the church again. Jesus in John's gospel, he, he takes the ethic in which we're supposed to have is that they will know we are Christians by the love we have for one another. One of my favorite ways of capturing maybe part of what I'm saying and where the church is today is if you're on an airplane and they say, the oxygen masks fall, You put on your mask before you put on anybody else's. The church, to know it has a root someplace else in the world, to know its king comes in a different way, to know that it has different freedom, needs to put on its worship, its filling, its unity with God before it goes out and tries to fix everything. And so often... That seems like the challenge of Christianity rather than abiding, John's language, the with God life and eternal life, to be where you are in that way. This is just one simple thing. I'll just go quickly on this. There's the church militant and the church triumphant. These are classical terms, also called the pilgrim church. Um, consists of Christians on earth who struggle as soldiers of Christ against sin, the devil, the evil one in John's passage, the rulers of the world of darkness against the spirits of wickedness in the high places. The church triumphant, which consists of those in heaven and having the beatific vision of God. We often confuse the two. The church today sometimes has conceived of itself as being triumphant in this world before its time. The church had a way of residing in the world today. It would be that pilgrim church, which is on the way to that vision, 
but doesn't fall for the illusion that it is already there, that it already knows what's best, that it is already in triumph. We might have visions of that because of the Spirit, but it is not the way in which we are to function in our wholeness. Um, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. The eternal kind of life, the with God life, is one in which we have joy in this place. For they, we, are not any more of the world than he is of the world. My prayer is not that Christ would take us out of the world, but that he would protect us from the evil one while we are in the world. This is a correct assumption here by Christians too, is that our fight actually, while the world in John's gospel has this weird, it is for God so loved the world in John 3, 16, the world will hate you um, in John 14, 15, 16. Um, I have overcome the world at the end of 16, we are not to be taken out of the world, but be to protected from the evil one. Satan, in, in John's Gospel, as I've said, it doesn't have any exorcisms in it because it is the one exorcism of all. It is pushing out that evil one in the world. Just spending time on that to say, we might think our battle is, is more with the world, but we often forget that the one Christ is acting protection from from us is not the world, but the evil one that sort of operates behind it. Um, the Lord's Prayer uh, classically ends with deliver us from evil. But in the Greek, in, in some of the Bibles that you have might have this, it, it's more fully, and it probably should be translated, deliver us from the evil one, acknowledging that truth in a regular prayer life. But we are to be sanctified, we are to be made holy in your truth, your word is truth. That the church, again putting on our masks first, is to be ones who are being sanctified by God's word before we go out into the world, before we go and try to repair everything, which is not our task, by the way, <laughs> um, uh, but it's the task of God. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but in this other Gospels, Christ tells us that our object of love is not the other believer all the time, but our neighbor. Which is important to remember because our neighbor is the person next to us. It's a proximity thing. It's the person whom you come upon on the road of life. So often we think our job is to love the whole world, and I forget who said this, but that inevitably just sort of makes us narcissists. Um, our job is to love the people we come in contact in our daily lives. Your neighbor, the other believers in John's gospel, and then your enemy, which I think Stanley Harawas says is some mix of both, um, your neighbors and the people you go to church with, um, that you need to learn to love those people as well. Uh, my prayer is not for them alone, but my prayer is for those who come to believe to, through them. Um, this is just a quick way of capturing that sort of mindset. As Christ prays for himself, he's the J in the middle. He prays for his disciples, those nearest to him. And then he prays for those who believe because of what they've done, which I put us. Um, we might be somewhere, the line between the second and the third is a bit harder. Maybe I should have dotted it. Um, because what is it to believe in them? But, but one thing I want to say about that portion is Christianity is a received thing. None of us invented Christianity. All of us received it. 
We most often received it from other people or churches or from books, perhaps, written by a person, so I guess that one doesn't count. (laughs) Music written by a person. We've all received this thing. The church is a people of receivers, and that's one of our five words we sort of orient around here is tradition. We didn't invent this all. It is something we receive that has history that goes back all the way to these first disciples who knew Jesus. And so when Christ prays for the church to be one, one, if that's a, a um, structural oneness, we have failed um, greatly. Um, I think we should take it as a challenge to structural oneness. We pray for other churches. We pray for other Christians. We pray for those other people throughout the valley worshiping today and throughout the world. We pray that God in his wisdom may bring us back together as one body. But I don't think that oneness is what he means as much. It's oneness in residing in him. And theologically, if we can see that here, the churches to the south and the churches to the north and the east and west all reside in him as Christ resides in us the same, then we can find oneness. Bureaucratically, it'll be a lot harder. Um, Institutionally, it'll be a lot harder, and those aren't wins for us. But we can have humility again to see that Christ is active in all those places. So that um, this is a quote from Pope Benedict. We'll skip today. Um, I have one last thing. I read this almost every Palm Sunday, um, but I want to read it to end today's Palm Sunday again. This is from Gerhard Lofink. Where do real changes happen in the world? The thing that move people, move people to the depths of the souls the things that petrify them or drive them forward, that will incite this or that revolution or prevent it, that destroy dreams or bestow bestow new hope. Does any of that show up in the news? Can it adequately be shown? A British scientist supposedly fed three million so-called facts into a machine. He programmed the machine, true knowledge. This is a true story. He wanted to find out what was the most boring day in the 20th century. The computer found it was April 11th, 1954. On that day, supposedly nothing important happened. No famous person was born. No celebrity died. Nothing exploded. No war broke out. No house collapsed. The way the media, the way the media thinks is clearly revealed in this absurd computer game. An event that event eventually has to be something that shrieks, stinks, or explodes. Incidentally, April 11th, 1954, was a Palm Sunday. In case it might have been that on that day, even a few thousand believers, even as we do Palm Sunday here, took the beginning of Holy Week and the entry of Jerusalem into the city so much into their hearts that their lives were somehow changed. Then on that day, a great deal happened, and it was very important indeed. Let us pray. God, may we 
today take into our hearts and our lives this beginning of Holy Week that you have entered into the holy city. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now in the highest. Restore us. May we take your humble entry and with your victory over death that we foretaste in Lazarus being there, may we take that into our hearts so much so that we are brought into that life this holy week. And we can walk the journey with you towards Good Friday to hear of the trial and the suffering that undertakes and then to be able to sit in the silence of Holy Saturday so that next week at this time we may partake into the great joys of the resurrection, the gifts of new creation, the gift of new life, the gift of your restoration of all things. We ask this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What wondrous love is this?